We're working through this series. We started last week looking at 24 hours, the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus. One of the things that we noticed last week as we thought about that issue was the, the, the reality that is that when we think about the Christian message, a huge proportion of the message of the Bible is given to the death of Jesus. That's a remarkable thought. When we stop and think about it, the idea that the, the death of the founder of, of a religion plays the most significant part is astounding. Uh, and so for all of us as we come to it, for those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus and we come, we come to understand what that means for us to come back to this regularly, to be reminded of the significance of it is very important for us. Uh, but it might be that you're visiting this afternoon. It might be that you're just coming to terms with the message of the Christian faith. And the idea uh, that the message is founded on the death of Jesus seems strange. And therefore, what we want to do is spend uh, these next weeks, little by little, looking at the implications as time is moving on through these 24 hours, so that we can understand uh, and hopefully we can explain why it is so significant. Last week, we, uh, we met Jesus with his disciples in um, a, a room. It's called the upper room. It's described as the upper room. It was literally that, uh, an upper floor mo- room where he was meeting quietly with his disciples because it was a significant feast time. It was the Passover feast. What, one of the things that we noticed last week was the Passover connects us in this 24 hours to the whole of the history of the way in which God has dealt with his people. It connects us with the past. It connects us with significant events in the past. Now, having looked at the connections with the past, seen those identifiers in the past, we now find ourselves in Gethsemane, this this section which, if you like, transfers us at lightning speed from past to present. This really grabs us. It has a sense of the reality of the moment. This, in a sense, although we'll see in a few minutes why it has historical significance, this takes us to the now. Here we have Jesus. He's met with his disciples. They've uh, shared a meal together. He's uh, inaugurated the celebration of communion as we remember his body and his blood. Uh, and that's a significant moment for us today. But now we find they sing a hymn and then they go out. They go out into the mountainside, the hillside outside of Jerusalem. Read that in verse 35. Sorry. Verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's where we find now Jesus. Now we see something really significant. Verse 36 says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Sit here while I go over there and pray. I mean, straight away, That takes us to the reality of the moment. Here's Jesus, the Son of the living God, in constant relationship with his Father, in a uniqueness of relationship uh, that we are invited to partake in, and yet in this world we will never experience a closeness that he enjoyed. And here he is, 
hours away from dying, and he prays. He's praying. It's significant, isn't it? Here we are, literally facing the final hours, and he knows that at this crisis, at this moment, at this point in time, the priority is relationship with my Father. But how that works out is going to be really interesting. As we see it unfold, we see something of the heart of the humanity of Jesus. We get a little glimpse into what it was really like as he shares these intimate last few hours with his friends. Sit here a while, I go over there and pray, he said. Then he took Peter and James and John, which are the two sons of Zebedee, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. That takes us. I don't know whether you've ever come to the, uh, when you look at the idea of Jesus. We can fall into a trap when we do one of two things. We can either overemphasize the divinity of Jesus, uh, the, the living God present with us, in this world, we can overemphasize that to the point where Jesus becomes almost this distant being, disconnected from our reality. We can go wildly wrong when we overemphasize that, when we don't remember the reality of this kind of incident where Jesus is facing the next hours and we see expressed within him the reality of his human experience, at least the reality of his human experience. Where we see, as we see here, words that express sorrow to the point of death. Somebody has written it, uh, helped us to understand it in this way. They've said, Jesus is expressing here an anguish that threatens life itself. I'm guessing that in a gathering of this size, some of us, but not all of us, will have been there at some point. There will have been incidents, events in life, which have been so overwhelming, so incredibly overwhelming, that they have brought us to a point of overpowering sorrow. One of the things that um, I, I really do understand this when people say, uh, you don't understand. You're having conversation. You've had a conversation with somebody and, and they're working through some real difficulties and you might hear... Uh, I don't, you don't understand. And the reality is that for me, very often we would say, no, I don't understand. I, I don't understand what it is that you're going through in all of, its, all of its gritty reality. I don't understand. But, but let me just tell you this. I know somebody who has been beyond where you are. I know that Jesus has been in his human existence 
stretched to the point where the sorrow is so overwhelming, the anguish is so deep that it, it, it threatens life itself. Jesus has been there. If you are going through that at the moment, you are not going through it alone. You have a God in heaven. You have an elder brother if you trust in him. In the relationship between the Father and the Son, you have a God who knows where you are. Not theoretically, in reality. But you know, as we read the rea- that, that sort of human experience, it, it raises a question mark, doesn't it? What is it that Jesus is fearing? Why is it that Jesus is so incredibly overwhelmed? Because when we look down through history, we can see many people who have faced death and have not been crushed in the way that Jesus is crushed at this moment in time. Just in this past week, there's been a posthumous award. It's only the 10th Victoria Cross that has been awarded since the Second World War to Lance Corporal James Ashworth, who showed no fear in protecting his comrades in the face of enemy attack. He, without any fear, sacrificed himself for the sake of others. Now, we could also say, well, well, we could say, I guess that when we're in the spur of the moment, then, of course, there can be the reality of that uh, adrenaline drive where we, we are able to give ourselves in a way that others can't. But, you know, the reality is there has equally been down through the history of this world many who know what is coming the next day and have, have been able to go towards that reality of death without the kind of emotional expression that we see here. What is it? Why is it that Jesus is crushed to this point? Number one, we've already said, the great thing is that He is. Therefore, you can relate to Him. You and I can relate to Him. We, we can never be somewhere we, where He hasn't been. But why is it that he is where he is? Look at the words that he uses. Verse 39, he says this. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Just imagine, if you can, for a moment, it's, it's, it's a, a poignant picture. We, we never want to see, we never find it comfortable to see those who we really love really broken, do, can we? we? We feel uncomfortable with that. Yet what we see here is Jesus, who steps away from those disciples and is literally so broken that he is on his face, on the ground, praying to his Father in heaven, 
If it's possible, take this cup from me. But not as I will, because that is what I will. I, I will, in my humanity, in my experience, I will that that would be the case. I, I, that's where Jesus is. He says, I will that this would be taken from me. And yet the Father in heaven is handing him this cup. Do you see the words that Jesus is using? This cup, Jesus knows, is coming from heaven, from his Father. This is his Father's cup. He's giving it to his Son. And therefore Jesus comes to his Father knowing that his Father is the only point whereby this cup might head off in a different direction than to him. And he says, if it is your will, take it from me. But not my will, your will. I want it not to be. But more than that, I want to do your will. That's where Jesus is. But as he, this, isn't, if this, isn't, um, this isn't some kind of intellectual debate though, is it? This isn't some sort of conversation between a father and a son. So, so what do we think? Do you, do you think? Should we do this? Is it, should we head off in this direction? This is a broken Jesus on his face, pleading that this might not happen, yet with an overriding determination to be obedient rather than disobedient. Because in his humanity, in, in a disobedient humanity, he has every reason and every opportunity to walk away. But he doesn't. Look at how it continues. Verse 42. A second time. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. There is something remarkably intimate and powerful about that cup metaphor. It's so powerful that it has been used repeatedly in our literature down through the ages. The idea of having something passed from one to the other, an invitation to drink this. Take it on board. Drink it up. This is me giving this to you. Now drink it. Second time, Jesus goes... What is going on here? Why is it that Jesus is so incredibly moved in the face of death? Is it possible that it is more than simply the idea of dying? Is it possible that it is more than simply the idea of the physical torture and pain that he knows he will endure? I would say absolutely yes. Why? Because Jesus knows Isaiah chapter 53. He knows it. Listen to what Isaiah 53 verse 9 and 10 says. He, Jesus, written 700 odd years before Jesus, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. 
What does that mean? It means that God the Father considers the Son to be wicked. What does God do with wickedness? He separates himself from it. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. (laughs) That is incredible, isn't it? That is just incredible. Just think about that for a moment. There is a sense in which Steve Chalk has recently described the idea of the cross as cosmic child abuse. When we read something like this, unless we understand something more, and we've got to understand something more, it sounds just like that. It pleased the Father in heaven to crush the Son and cause Him to suffer. And yet look at what we see in Gethsemane, which denies the whole idea of any possibility of cosmic child abuse. Look at what we see. We see a father and son heading together towards heading together towards a separation where the son says, Your will be done. I will be obedient to you because obedience to you is more important than anything else. It's incredible, isn't it? That is where Jesus heads as we read this explanation. There is a deeper crisis than simply the crisis of impending death. There is a deeper crisis than simply the reality of a horrific, torturous final few hours and a painful death. What is it? It is a crisis in the relationship between the Father and the Son. That's what Jesus sees. That's what Jesus experiences. He sees the beginnings at this moment in time. He sees the reality that as we are heading down this line, the only thing that you can consider to be me to be is wicked. And that means that I will be separated from you. And I've spent the past 33 years in relationship with you. And these past three years as I've ministered, there has never been a moment of separation between me and you, Father. There has never been a moment where we've been separated. And yet the reality of what I will have to drink is that I will be separated from you. And that is more than I think I can bear. It's more than I can think. I think I can, I can stand to be separated from you. Because the reality is, the reality is that the greatest trial to the separation of death is the fracturing of relationships. That is the most difficult, the most painful, the most incomparable challenge to the crisis of death. When we've been through it, when we've experienced it, we know that that is the case. It's why we grieve. A few years ago, you know, I I think many of our 
musicians are some of the most open people, aren't they? That they are able to communicate in words what a lot of us think but don't dare to say. They're honest and open. It's interesting that, uh, that Paul spoke about this in Acts chapter 17. He said some of the poets have described a reality, a reality of our existence. A few years ago, I still think it is one of the most powerful songs written in the past decade. It's by My, Chem- My Chemical Romance, and it's called Cancer. It was an incredibly poignant expression of the pain of separation. But the final uh, line to the chorus says this, because the hardest part of this is leaving you. The hardest part of this is leaving you. In a sense, what we begin to see as we see Jesus on his face in Gethsemane is the reality of that expression. The hardest part of this is leaving you. That's where Jesus is heading. Now, up to now, we might be beginning to gain an insight into what's going on as we see Jesus in that situation. But even at this point, we begin to see little indications of why this moment is the greatest hope for you and me. Look at the way that it works out. He takes his disciples onto the Mount of Olives. They head to Gethsemane. It's a place where it would appear as though they know it well. They travel there fairly regularly. They probably share time together, have done down through the months. That's a place where they know. We'll see next week why it's important that they know that. We see them, we see them in that situation, and then we see the, the closest, the inner, inner circle, if you like, the ones who Jesus was really the, the closest to, Peter, James, and John. Really close, intimate, that he says, now come with me. And he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Keep watch with me. This is a really critical time. I, I mean, the The atmosphere must have been electric. I reckon that the disciples were hanging on every word that Jesus said. This wasn't a throwaway comment. Oh, just, just wait here while I head over there. You know when you're with somebody and they are going through the most difficult of situations, you, you can't ignore it, can you? When you're with them, you are with them in it to a greater or lesser extent. It's not as though the disciples were wandering along behind Jesus, just chatting about the events of the past few days. The, the, the moments, the hours that have built up to this, absolutely written into their minds that this is a significant moment in the life and the experience of Jesus. And Jesus says, watch with me. He returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. 
He found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken, from, taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look. Do you see the progression? Or if you like, the regression. We see Jesus with the disciples. It's a, it's a massive moment and he says, wait here and pray. I reckon that the disciples had all of the best intentions of watching. As Jesus says, watch with me. Uh, undoubtedly, they understood that they were to be praying with him. Uh, and then Jesus returns, he wakes them up. And they've fallen asleep. And then he goes away. Again, a second time. And he returns. And they've fallen asleep. And look what he does this time. Nothing. He leaves them to sleep. And he goes away and he prays a third time. And then he returns. What does that say to us? Why does that begin to fill us with hope? I think it fills us with hope because of this. When Jesus says, watch and pray unless you fall into temptation, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, he is observing the reality of our experience. It works like this. If our ongoing security is dependent on our ability to stay awake and to keep on praying, the disciples tell us we're goners. There's the reality. If it is dependent on you and me, my, re- my human experience, your human experience says this, you cannot sustain it, I cannot sustain it. We cannot keep going. But Jesus can. He keeps going. In the face of what he is heading into over the next hours, he is the one who keeps praying. He is the one who sustains it. He is the one who keeps going. If you're thinking, if you've reached the point where you've... uh, Many conversations that we have, um, some of you are thinking, I know this idea of the Christian faith, it all fits together, I can see how it works, but I know me. I don't know whether I can keep it going. If I make this commitment, I look back at my life over the past years, there's lots of things I've committed to and I've not kept them going. I've not been able to sustain this, I've not been able to sustain that. I know what I'm like. And if I make a commitment to this Christian faith, I'm not sure that I can keep it going. Great. That's where the disciples are. 
That's the reality. If you enter into the Christian faith thinking that you can keep it going and you can sustain it, we are in trouble. You will end up disappointed. But the great message is this. In the face of the greatest adversity, Jesus kept going. Now, this is even more powerful, I think, because it refers as well to something that was said earlier. Simon Peter and Jesus, Peter, who's actually asleep, um, is in conversation with Jesus. Uh, and he's, Jesus says, I'm basically says to him, I'm going to die. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Uh, P- Peter says, no, that, that can't be. And then the most poignant words come out of Jesus' mouth. He turns to Simon and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. The battle that we face in our spiritual, in the spiritual dimension is a battle beyond our understanding. It is way bigger than we can ever imagine. There are cosmic forces battling but the battle has been won in Jesus. But there is a demand that we, that, that the disciples here are broken. But look at what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. I've prayed that your faith will not fail. He then says to, to the disciples here, stay praying so that you don't fall into temptation. What happens? They don't keep praying. And what happens? They fall into temptation. Is that the end of it for them? No. Because Jesus keeps praying. Jesus sustains it. Jesus is the one who continues and delivers when all around him fails. And that is one of the greatest hopes that we can see in Gethsemane. At at root, when we see the impending human crisis in the life of Jesus, when we get under the skin, we see the reality of the triumph of Jesus in the face of adversity. Because he keeps going. We've said that this, just in closing, we've said that this particular section rushes us forward to the present. It's the most poignant way of describing the next few hours. This is what Jesus is heading into. Gethsemane, on face value, has no historical connection, and yet it does. If you have the opportunity, get out a pen, Make a note on your phone. Go home tonight and read Psalm 88. Psalm 88, we looked at it actually in our life group last uh, Tuesday evening. We weren't expecting to. It just turned up in conversation. Psalm 88 is one of the most extraordinary psalms that you can possibly imagine. If you, if you imagine the psalms, these are the songs of the people of God. Lots of the songs start off with that human expression of brokenness. 
It starts off with, uh, it seems as though you are distant, it seems as though you are far away, it seems as though, and yet it rises to a triumphant picture. It rises to a point where we're reminded of how great God is. That's how many of the Psalms work. They, they, they remind us of our condition and they portray God in His greatness and in His saving power. Psalm 88 is remarkable because it doesn't go to that point of hope. Psalm 88 is brokenness. It's the reality of the, uh, of the, of the, the, the challenge of death. It's the silence of God. It's all of those things that as we express how we feel very often in spiritual terms, it, many can resonate with Psalm 88. It feels as though there is a distance between me and God. It feels as though everybody is deserting me. It feels as though I am alone. It feels as though there is no hope. Now, task for Psalm 88 over the next few days. Read Psalm 88 in the light of Jesus' experience in Gethsemane. Read it in prophetic terms. Read it in the sense of Jesus praying as he does here and yet finding silence from his Father. Is there any connection with Gethsemane in the past? Oh, yeah. Writ large in the experience and prophetic words of the Psalms. This is where it's heading. There is going to be a moment in time when there is silence from heaven. So where is the hope? The psalmist keeps praying. There's the hope. Where is the hope in Gethsemane? Jesus keeps praying. Why? Because what we're beginning to see is when Jesus is considered wicked, which is what we read in Isaiah 53, when Jesus is marked as that by the Father, when he is described in that way, it demands that there is silence from heaven. It demands that a father who is just separates himself. And yet Jesus has done nothing. So where is the wickedness coming from for there to be silence in heaven? Where is the wickedness coming from? That is the great message of the beginning of the silence of a father to a son in Gethsemane where the silence works like this. Can we take the cup away? Can I do anything else? And the silence says, no answer, keep going. Because the wickedness is mine. The silence that Jesus experiences is the silence that I deserve. 
the silence that you deserve. That, that you by nature deserve. And yet Jesus carries that silence into Gethsemane and bears the distancing of a father. The idea that the one who expresses love to a son is now separating that love and is distancing that. What's going on? The distance between the father and the son, the separating of that love, is being expressed because Jesus is connecting that love to you and to me. To conclude, again, not quite as poignant, not quite as powerful a set of lyrics, but the latest, one of the more recent singles from Rihanna of all people has the strap line this, we found love in a hopeless place. Wow. You see, Gethsemane looks absolutely hopeless. And yet it is filled with an expression of love. Why? Because Jesus is there facing the silence of his Father instead of those who trust in him. Instead of us who trust in him. We deserve that. We should face that silence. We should be turning to a father saying, take this cup from me, this rejection, this abandonment, this cup of your judgment. Take this cup from me. We should be the ones who are saying, take this cup from me. And God should be saying to us, no, you drink it. You are responsible for it. You are guilty. You bear it. You drink to the bottom of it and then you lick out the dregs. That's what we should hear. And yet Jesus says, I tell you, as I express my love to you in this hopelessness, I'll drink it. I'll drink that. I'll sup it to the bottom. I'll lick out the dregs. And I'll carry on to the next hours. I will do it. Because you can't. Hopeless. And yet an incredible expression of love.